It's Jared. Here we are. It's been a crazy year so far in so many ways, but as of November 6th, we have a decision. We know that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. Now, there might be legal challenges, there might be delay, but we have a conclusion. After a year of the weirdest presidential campaign and arguably the weirdest year, we are here. But what does this mean, right? Yes, it's been an incredibly polarized time and people have really developed strong feelings about both uh, candidates, really. But going forward, what can we expect because of this election? In other words, what is going to matter from this election going forward? There's a lot, right? Georgia flipping, whether it's the fact that mail-in ballots were at an all-time high or even that voter turnout was at an all-time high. There were some unique elements to this year's election. So to break it all down, we're going back to our favorite segment, Second Look, where Adam and I are going to touch on a lot of different things that we have learned from this election cycle, as well as revisit some of our previous topics, notably the prop system in California. Not going to say too much because I talk a lot this show, so stay tuned. Hey, Adam. Hey, Jared. How you doing? Good. Excited for a second look part two. And this one is far more topical and kind of uh, obvious, I guess, than the last one. But excited to dive in. For all the listeners, we are recording this about two hours after the AP, the Associated Press, and a bunch of other major networks called the race for Biden. So I guess you could call it quote unquote official at this point, at least in terms for the mass media. Obviously, exact certification and electoral process will happen in the months ahead. But for all intensive purposes, Biden is going to be the next U.S. president as of two hours ago. Initial thoughts on that, I suppose. I want to say I'm, I'm happy. I mean, I don't think it's a secret here contested. We're a pretty liberal crew. So I'm not going to try to hide that right now. But honestly, looking at the numbers, a bit disappointed. Obviously not as disappointed as I potentially could have been. (laughs) There was room for much bigger disappointment here. But I thought that the Dems should have done significantly better on all levels of government, on the Senate, on the presidency, and in the House. And it brings up a lot of questions that despite winning this election, what is the future of both parties going to look like going forward? Because this was an anomaly of an election, right? We had significantly higher turnout, but I feel like I was more driven by the hatred of one candidate and not passion for another. Mm. So going forward, what is that going to look like when we don't always have candidates that inspire so much turnout just based on people not liking them instead of liking them? Yeah, I would probably agree with you on almost all of that. I would say, well, Biden winning is good. I agree with you that he won by a lot less than the polls predicted he would win by. And the Senate is not looking positive, at least for the Democrats. It would kind of take a miracle in the Georgia runoffs for them to pull out the Senate. So I guess we'll have to wait and see till January for that one. But I would in generally agree with you, right? Trump, for so many people on the left, was hateable enough that it was just easy to coalesce around someone else. I mean, even in some states, the fact that Joe Jorgensen, who was the libertarian candidate, took about a percent of the votes made the difference. So it didn't even necessarily have to be Biden in the sense that Trump just did not garner the votes. But I agree with you going forward. I would say a good amount of the progressive left and even some people in the middle were somewhat disillusioned with the Biden president and only kind of went around it because Trump was so, so bad in their eyes. But before we kind of rail on the Democratic Party, and that will 
come in this episode. Don't worry. I wanted to turn to a win, I guess, for the Democratic Party in this election cycle. And that was Georgia. I'll start basically by saying I thought Georgia didn't have a great shot to begin with. And then as the numbers started coming in, I thought they really didn't have a shot. And yes, I was aware that there was going to be more heavily Biden favored mail-in ballots coming in, but still the gap looked pretty big. And now it's looking very close, but it looks like Biden might pull it out. And I think that's in large part due to Stacey Abrams mobilizing a lot of people in Atlanta, specifically lower income black people in Atlanta and the surrounding suburbs that voted in much higher numbers. And I think that's probably why Georgia flipped, but I guess we'll have to wait for exact polling to see why. Adam, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think Georgia is also uh, very much a Biden demographic, right? Having young black people, young black women in Georgia in the cities is very much Biden's demographic that he's going for. I think, yeah, the special elections are going to become kind of battleground 101 for the entire American government, like all funding, all parties, all candidates are going to be focusing on that race right there because it really makes or breaks the Senate. So it's going to be interesting to see in the months ahead. But yeah, I thought Georgia was a surprising flip, but a very doable flip and they made it happen. Yeah, I would agree. I guess I'll kind of touch briefly on what I was saying earlier, which is that the major winner, I would say, for anyone really here is that voter turnout was astoundingly good by American standards in this election. I don't know the exact number, but it definitely cleared, I think, the 70 percent marker, which is always a good sign in presidential elections. Midterms coming around in 2022, that's obviously going to drop, but that's kind of within line of what normally happens. But I think, again, the question is, I think, as you posed, Adam, is whether that's going to continue just because everyone voted out Trump because they didn't like him or this is some authentic movement of civic engagement. I mean, I think that the only way to test that is for a different candidate down the road, i.e. a Biden re-election campaign come 2024. But that's far enough off. We just got through 2020. So no reason to worry about that in the moment. But I did want to go now maybe to a loss for the Democratic Party, which is that the Latino male vote specifically dropped significantly for Biden compared to what it was for even Hillary Clinton, and certainly for Barack Obama. Many pundits were leading up saying there needs to be a diverse coalition, right? For Biden to win, he needs to rebuild that Obama coalition that brought together a whole swath of people of color and as well as some suburban white people. And he obviously did that enough, but a lot of the male Latino voting numbers, specifically out of Texas and Florida, were not as high as people predicted. And that's ultimately why Texas and Florida flipped for Donald Trump. So... I guess my question is, why do you think that happened? And what can the Democratic Party do going forward to correct that? Well, obviously, terrible loss. I think both states were very much in play for the Democratic Party if they were able to get the Latino vote under their big tent. And I don't necessarily blame them either. I think as the Democratic Party expands more and more, it gets harder to try to appease every single person that's within your party lines, right? Like we're getting a more and more diverse coalition within the Democratic Party and it becomes difficult to keep every single one of them around. Now, that being said, I think there needs to be a fundamental rebranding of the Democratic Party. I think despite Republicans having less people supporting them, like there's more liberal people than conservative people in America, right? Republicans have a better brand and a better messaging system that they are able to create to get voters to turn out consistently in favor for their candidates with passion, you know, donors, all of these things. The Democratic Party has been lacking at that. Like we need FDR style messaging that's like, we are the Democratic Party, here's what we stand for. We've become a little divided, right? We have the progressives, we have the moderates. 
And while I think, yeah, everyone has a different political ideology and I'm, I'm glad that they're still within the Democratic Party, I think there needs to be a stronger push to be like, despite your inter-party conflict or inter-party disagreement, at the end of the day, you're all Democrats. You got to come together and push forward. Yeah, I think there's two important points there. One is messaging, which I hope to do an episode on on its own at some point here, because I would say, yes, the Democrats are kind of alienating both suburban white people. And as we see some Latino male voting blocks, primarily in some of the messaging that they're using, even though Trump's messaging necessarily wasn't great, it, it was consistent with his supporters, uh, to say the least. And then the second element, I think, there is that intra-party conflict and where that will go you know, moving forward, right? The question is, is is it even unifiable at this point? Because it is so broad. Yeah, I think you can probably patch up the messaging and build a bigger tent. But, you know, eventually, if the the tent schisms from within, it's going to be a problem. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Because at the end of the day, we've kind of found you can't win the culture war and the economic war at the same time in America, as sad as it is for a lot of people on the left, right? The more you're going to push social reforms, say about police reform, the more you're going to alienate uh, middle class white suburban people. That's just kind of the correlated factor that we have. But for the Democrats to try to get both, the messaging will have to significantly improve. I agree with you. Moving on from that, again, we're just kind of hitting some highlights, winners, losses that we kind of saw from this election. The next thing is, since again, a lot of our listeners are from California, we wanted to talk about what is going to happen to Kamala's Senate seat? Seeing that she is, you know, a vice president-elect at this point, that leaves Governor Gavin Newsom the ability to appoint a senator for the remaining time in her term. And there's been a lot of names floated around. But if we remember, right, there is kind of this divide in California, and we'll get a little bit more to this later, between progressives and liberals. And this election showed it probably more than any in recent memory. So this is not going to be an easy pick for Newsom. Obviously, it'll be a very staunch Democrat, but what that looks like is very up in the air. So Adam, let's hear it here. If you have a prediction, what is your prediction to what's going to happen to Kamala's seat? Well, I don't have an exact prediction. I know some of the names being thrown around are Alex Padilla, who is the current Secretary of State, some California politicians like Barbara Lee, like Karen Bass, all great politicians, all would make a great senator. I think, like you said, the bigger question, I guess, is ideologically, where is the senator going to fall? Are they going to fall on the progressive wing or are they going to fall on the moderate wing? And then the other question naturally is, who are you appeasing and or making mad as Gavin Newsom, right? Because this is not a senator that's selected by the people. This is a senator that's appointed and he has a lot of power in terms of California politics right now in how progressive are, is your appointment going to be? Yeah, I would agree with you. I think some of the reasons that we hear a bunch of different names being thrown around specifically is because I think a lot of Californians are, again, looking for a person of color to fill the seat. Specifically, I don't remember the last time, if ever, Californians had a Latino senator. And the Latino base, obviously, in California is massive. Um, and I think that's why probably Padilla's name has been thrown around. I think Kevin DeLeon is now out of the political fold in terms of likability. So he's gone. Ian Calderon, who's currently the head of the California Senate might be up as well in that consideration. But I would agree. I I don't really know yet where ideologically Newsom will go with this, but I think it probably will be Latino or Black member 
uh, would probably be my guess. And transitioning off of that, I guess, without avoiding the, you know, the major controversy, this is second look, which means we're supposed to look back at some of the things that we talked about in earlier episodes and see how they've changed. And the main one we wanted to do in this episode, although it is an election special and the president deserves a lot of attention, are the props in California. If you remember our most recent episode, we kind of laid down all the facts on all the different propositions with a little bit of analysis and opinion thrown in there. But it's looking like, and not everyone has been called at this point yet, but it is looking like a lot of the progressive props in California failed and failed by at least 5%, which is, it was shocking to some, but I guess it's kind of a gut check for most in terms of what California is really looking like. So Adam, if you can run through what past what failed and why do you think that is the way it went down okay well a lot of props this year i'll go through some of the big surprises slash the main ones that seem to be the biggest items on the on the ticket this year so proposition 17 to restore former felon voting when they're in parole passed that's great for voting rights on the flip side though california prop 18 which would allow 17-year-olds to vote in the primary elections. That didn't pass, unfortunately. 55% said no. So while it was a relatively small margin, still disappointing. Proposition 22, one of the most heavily funded propositions, funded primarily by companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, which stood to benefit from its passage, it passed. I think this was, again, a very uh, not not clear-cut issue. There were people from all sides of the spectrum supporting this or not supporting this. So whatever you felt on that one. Proposition 25 did not pass. And so we now have our cash bail system that was going to be replaced by a risk assessment system, but no longer. We still will have our cash bail system in California. And those are some of the the big ones that got voted yes or no on. Yeah, I guess, as I said, this was kind of a sign that California is not this like progressive communist fantasy that a lot of uh, people in red states would paint it as. But I would agree the prop system itself is somewhat flawed in its writing and its way to the kind of just massively fun things to success or to failure. But I would agree. Yeah. I mean, affirmative action did not pass either in California. That was prop 16. Rent control failed for the second or third time in a row in California. That was Proposition 21. And then it looks like even Prop 15, which is the repeal of the old Prop 13 and quote unquote split rolling, did not look to pass either. That one hasn't been officially called yet as of this moment, but is not looking like it'll pass. So really, besides the felon voting rights being restored, almost none of the progressive legislation was passed, which again kind of harkens back to is California really this progressive state that Newsom would be able to appoint a squad-like member to the Senate? And my prediction would probably be no, based on the fact that kind of the diagnostic that the props did in California. So I think that was very interesting. And we'll have to kind of see how that'll change going forward, if there's going to be any legislative patches to that. But yeah, kind of a very mixed bag in general, probably one that a lot of progressives were not too happy with. I mean, I think even within California being a liberal bubble, the coastal cities of California are really the liberal bubble. Because once you leave those areas, you do have a pretty red California. I know that if California's electoral college seats were given proportionally, you'd have anywhere between 15 and 18 red electors. So we do have a decent populace of California that is still Republican, that is still conservative. And then beyond that, you even have just moderate Democrats who really don't enjoy progressive politics. So California is a mixed bag 
and yeah, matters for propositions, matters for a Senate appointment. Yeah. yeah. So with all of that in mind, and I know we're blowing through this. So if you have any thoughts on this or want us to cover anything else, let us know. You always know how to contact us. We're on social media. You can always email us at info at But with all of that in mind, we wanted to spend the bulk of the show talking about what is the path going forward. And we'll start with the loser, which in this case is Trumpism and the Republican Party. And Right. 2016 was this great experiment. I remember someone called it the circus, because when you looked at the Republican primary in 2016, there were like millions of candidates, all with very different perspectives. You know, you have Jeb Bush, Rick Santorum, Donald Trump, Bobby Jindal, Ted Cruz. Oh, my God. So many people. But now the Republican Party for the past four years has really coalesced around Trumpism, minus the few people who left, i.e. Jeff Flake, Suzanne Collins, to an extent, John McCain. Right. There was a few people who did not coalesce. But for the most part, the Republican Party had chose Trumpism going forward. And now they don't have that. Right. Yes, there were some representatives who are elected who kind of, you know, follow the same base as Trump. But Trump itself is not there. So. Adam, what are your thoughts as to what the Republican Party should do going forward in terms of embracing Trumpism or kind of reverting back to a more moderate level of conservatism? Well, I think there are definitely people in the Republican Party that see Trumpism as the way forward, just because like the fact that 2016 happened, right? Like you were able to get a candidate like Trump elected with a decent electoral margin, right? Obviously not a popular vote, but hey, it happened. I think then there's the other group of people that are more towards the uh, Lincoln Project or Republican voters against Trump ideology of Republicanism. And I think they're currently in the smaller minority of the Republican Party. I think there's more people within the Republican Party that want to see it kind of continue on the path of Trumpism. I personally don't want to judge from across the aisle what the Republican Party does, because that's not really like the party that I belong to. I think overall, Trumpism seems to be a losing strategy, and somehow it was the only one that worked in 2016. I don't see a way how it continues going forward for a consistent, now this is our rebranding of the Republican Party, but for a temporary period of time, I definitely do seeing it continue for the next few election cycles. I think that's fair. I mean, you even saw some QAnon supporters get into office, right? So I think I think I would agree. And based on how close a lot of the you know flip states were, I agree. Trumpism is not dead, or at least it's not objectionable, right? It might be that it's not the favorite for a lot of people, but it's not enough of a turnoff for the most part for Republican voters. And as we kind of established, the reason the Dems won a lot is because they turned out in higher droves. And there just happened to be, as Adam mentioned, more Democrats than Republicans in just terms of registration across the country. The flip side of that, I think, is that a lot of the people who are going to be loyal to the Trump antics, at least, are now going to find themselves in a little bit of a troubling situation, i.e. Mike Pence and all the loyal people in his cabinet, the Stephen Millers of the world, right? Like, they might get picked up in a future Republican administration. They might not, right? They, they, they also didn't have a ton of friends in terms of political operatives, right? Mitch McConnell, to an extent, probably has more power than anyone in the Republican Party at this very moment. So I think it'd probably be up to him and some other party officials as to what to do with the hardcore Trump base in terms of reintegrating them into the Republican Party. Just another point I want to mention is that Trump still got 47.7% of the vote. So despite a lot of people saying was well, absolute worst president in America, right, that's the polarized side of the left, you still have 
near half, I mean, obviously not enough to get him the presidency, but near half of our country still casting a ballot for him. So it isn't that objectionable, as Jared said. It is still a very viable option for a lot of people. And I think the kind of candidate that Trump would be tweaked to be a, a little less brash and a little less rough on the edges could be a very viable candidate for the Republican Party. Yeah, I would agree. And we'll have to wait and see. That one's a lot harder to diagnose because really until the midterms, we're not going to figure out a whole lot. Although, as I said, the Senate looks to have swung in the Republican Party's favor with some people running on a Trump ideology and some not. So we'll have to see. And then the bigger question that we've been alluding to this entire show has been, what is progressivism going to look like in the Democratic Party? Right. I would say a lot of people, rightfully so, are quick to say, like, look, Biden's in office. Great. We're going to mitigate the, the immediate damage here. But what is what's going to happen during this Biden administration? Are we going to see Green New Deal-esque policies? Are we going to see significant social reform? Are we going to see a lot of these kind of major progressive cornerstones actually happening? Or is it also going to get swept under the rug? And my first question, I suppose, is if it does get swept under the rug, does the Democratic Party have a chance going forward? And two, if it does happen, does the Democratic Party have a chance going forward? Well, very loaded question. I think first just to note is Biden has gotten significantly more liberal and more towards the progressive party over the course of the campaign. As a primary candidate, he seemed to be the most moderate candidate out there. And while all of a sudden he's not a progressive Bernie-esque, Elizabeth Warren-esque candidate, he's gotten significantly more progressive over the course of his candidacy, likely to draw in progressive party or progressive voters. I think if all of those reforms that Jared just mentioned, you know, the typical Green New Deal, workers' rights, climate change, all of these things that are big issues for the progressives of the Democratic Party, I think first they should be worked towards, right? Now, to what extent is really what matters in the Biden presidency here? I don't think he's going to go as far as some progressives would like him to. I think he definitely will make changes. And I think overall, he will find a good balance as a candidate. I think he knows that he has to keep a big tent here. He can't make anyone too upset. Here. So he's going to go with what's going to make the least people mad and the most people happy. And I think that's going to be very just even reforms that show that he's working towards something, but are not too drastic to where he starts losing out on another part of his base. Yeah, that's fair. I would probably agree it'll be somewhere in the middle. I think like the first sticking challenge for him, just to focus on one example, is fracking, right? He ran very significantly on the fact that he will not end fracking in Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania voted for him by a small margin, albeit, but voted for him. And I think if he now says, I'm in office, I'm going to end fracking because that's a very, you know, environmental goal and kind of a big sticking point for the progressives. Does he lose Pennsylvania and does the Democratic Party lose Pennsylvania going forward? We'll have to wait and see. But that's probably a tough decision for him because he's going to lose someone on that no matter what. And then the other thing I think that we can start thinking about, it's early, but we're going to start hearing cabinet names being thrown around. And I think the cabinet composition, as well as the advisor composition for Joe Biden, is going to play an important role in what the progressives think is going to happen, right? If you see an Elizabeth Warren on there, that's probably a good thing, right? Bernie maybe ends up on there, but he'll probably stay in the Senate, would be my guess, and be a Senate stronghold. You might see Andrew Yang in there. That's going to bring a new demographic in if he kind of ends up joining the cabinet in some way, shape, or form. And then you can probably find a myriad of other people who end up here. But I think it's important to, to kind of notice as the transition gets underway for Biden, 
who is he thinking about and who is he not thinking about? I mean, if he's picking and choosing from his former opponents in the Democratic primaries, he's going to have a more liberal progressive cabinet than he politically falls with because he seemed to be the most moderate candidate on that stage in the Democratic primaries. So if he's picking people, like you said, like Warren, like Yang, he's going to have a more progressive cabinet. And will that lead to more progressive policies? We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we will have to wait and see. I know this was kind of a blitz through a lot of the topics of the election, but we just hit on the highlights of what we noticed, you know, were really unique compared to some of the things that happened in past elections and compared to the polling and what we expected. But this is by no means an exhaustive discussion of the election. Um, As we said, we're recording this just now three hours after the news broke surrounding Biden winning, basically. And I think there's a lot that can happen between now and the inauguration in January that could significantly uproot this discussion, primarily if Trump just goes on a complete, you know, chaotic downward spiral because he has nothing to lose and, you know, in this lame duck period, creates some real havoc. Or if he really ends up winning some legal challenges, albeit they're a little bit weak, but, you know, you never know anymore. And then I think if either of that happens, this narrative will be significantly shifted. A lot of people call this election like the crossroads of American politics, right? Like this was the election, the most important one. And now that we have Trump, arguably the worst president in U.S. history, or as some claim to be, he's out of office. I don't think we've gotten out of the crossroads. I think we are still definitely within a crossroads in American politics. And a Biden presidency at least puts us in the middle of the crossroads and not on the wrong road. But we're still we're still in the crossroads. And it's going to be very interesting to see which path American politics takes going forward. I completely agree. I completely agree, right? The things that got Trump elected are still there. He might not be there, but the institutions and the beliefs that got him there are still there. So not, uh, I agree. We're still in a very polarized thicket here and the way out, very not clear. But with that, thank you all for listening to our second look election special. We'll have some more content coming out for you shortly. And I would say look out for it. We're going to do a lot of things that tie into the election. But also, right in the middle of all of this, we're hitting the highest COVID numbers per daily since this has started. So not to lose sight of kind of the overarching theme of 2020 and looks to be the overarching theme of 2021 as well. But we'll keep you up to date. We're here. We want to hear from you, though. So email us, DM us, let us know what you think. Catherine is working diligently on social media, so she will definitely forward any concerns you have to us, and we will include you in a future episode. Until next time, thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. And refer this to your friends and family if you think they'd be interested. This election was crazy, no doubt about it. But we want to hear from you, what you specifically took away from this election. You can always email us, DM us. I know I say this a lot, but I truly mean it. In the upcoming weeks, we have some really exciting content planned, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, thanks for helping us understand politics together.